so we today are continuing in this uh, uh, journey that we are on, that we started last week, this series called The Disciples' Journey. The Disciples' Journey. And, and over these weeks, we're wanting to answer the question, what does it look like to live as a disciple of Jesus? What, what are the characteristics? What is the, uh, the disposition? What are the identifying markers in the life of someone who has received the ever-restoring life of Christ and is now living that out as a disciple of Jesus. What does that person look like? And I think this is an incredibly important conversation to have because for most people who would say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus, for most of us, we, we've, we've kind of boiled down life as a disciple of Jesus as a list, like a life of to-do list. Right? And as long as we're more on the to-do list and not on the not-to-do list, then, we're, then we think we're living it right as a disciple. And one of the things we discovered last week was being a disciple of Jesus is not about what you do for him, but about who you are becoming because of him. What is his ever-restoring life forming in you? How is it shaping you? How is it refining how you see all of your life, and what is that ever-restoring life working through you? And we talked last week about um, how as disciples of Jesus, we are to follow the example of our rabbi, Jesus Christ. As his disciples, we follow his example, and we use the phrase, we, we should have the dust of our rabbi all over us. And so this morning, we're going to begin to dive into... Um, Looking at the example of Jesus, and in looking at his example, we're going to see five attributes that he models for us in his own life and that his disciples should have very much alive in their lives. So five attributes, five markers that as we mature together here at New Beginnings, as we mature as disciples of Jesus, um, these five markers are going to describe the type of disciples we're becoming, and this is what we're going to look at over the next five weeks. So what are those markers? So here they are. I want to put all five of them in front of you, and then we'll jump into the one for today. Our aim at New Beginnings is to become eyes up, knees down, Bible open, plugged in, sent out disciples. These are the five markers that we want to identify us as disciples of Jesus, we want to be eyes up. That's where we'll spend our time today. Knees down, right? Prayerful, committed, devoted, prioritizing prayer. Bible open, biblically literate disciples. Plugged in, valuing the body and sent out, living on mission. So that if, if you call New Beginnings home and you're wanting to describe your church to someone, I want you to be able to describe your church with, with these words, right? I want you to say, I know exactly what my church is about. Here's our mission. We are people connecting people to Jesus and his ever-restoring life where we live, work, and play. That's who we are, people connecting people to Jesus. This is the mission God has called us to. And how do we get that done? We live as disciples with our eyes up, our knees down, our Bibles open, plugged in, and sent out. That's how we get that mission done. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at these five attributes. And today we're going to begin with the first one, which is this idea of having our eyes 
up. We want to be disciples that live with our eyes up. What does that mean? It means that we live with a kingdom focus. I'm going to say that a lot today. We live with a kingdom focus. We live keeping the kingdom of God in view in, in all of our heart, in all of our mind, in all that we do. So often we tend to boil down being a disciple to church. And what I mean by church is the place that we go on Sundays. Being a disciple is all about the place I go on a Sunday. That's how, that's how I'm a disciple. This is the box I come to. And listen, church is essential. We're going to get into that when we get into plugged in to the body. It's essential. It's necessary. It's incredibly valuable and important. But when we only focus on the place that we go on Sundays, we lose sight of the massive reality of the kingdom of God. We lose sight of the massive reality of God's kingdom, and all of a sudden we begin to measure discipleship by church attendance, by church membership. If I'm a member and I go, I'm nailing it. But the reality is, if you're a disciple of Jesus, the kingdom of God isn't limited to where you go on Sunday. It is with you wherever you go. You take the kingdom with you. Eyes up means we are focused on the kingdom of God and the kingdom platform that he has given us and how we can step into that kingdom platform for his greatest glory. And so at New Beginnings, we want to be disciples who are eyes up with a kingdom focus. And this ability to focus, right, it, it matters in life. Being able to focus your eyes on what matters most is it a critical skill to have. I don't know if any of you are watching the Little League World Series right now. Anybody watching that right now? Man, it's super fun uh, watching Little League World Series, watching these kiddos who can get up and hit. I played Little League baseball for a little while. Not great. Wasn't awesome, right? Turns out you have to be able to catch and throw and hit. You need to be able to do all that. And I got uh, one, I think I could do one out of the three of those, and it wasn't throw or hit. And so um, I was really good at just receiving, you know what I mean? And so, uh, but I wasn't great. And, um, but every time I stepped into the batter's box as a, as a little guy, what did my coach, my parents, my teammates, and all the people watching the game, what were they all simultaneously yelling at me like some psychos? What were they watching? Saying, keep your eye. I want to tell every one of y'all something. That has never helped anybody, ever. <laughs> it's never helped. There's not one kid that got into the batter's box and went, oh, really? Okay, I'll do that. Let me try. No, nobody in the history of time has ever, has ever been done better because 80 people yelled, keep, you know what it does? It just makes us anxious that we're not going to do it. And that's what happened to me. <laughs> I found it, I found it hilariously difficult to focus on that on that baseball, I was easily distracted as a kid. I'm easily distracted as an adult, right? And so if, if a car drove by in the outfield, strike one, strike two, strike three, and I wouldn't even know what happened. And so I was, I was having these people yell, keep your eye. What were they saying? Focus on what matters, right? Focus on the thing that matters. And here's what you see from really elite athletes, right? If you look at Major League Baseball or the NBA, or you, you also see it in like a competitive sharpshooters and and archers, and uh, they have this uncanny ability to focus, to, to singularly focus on 
the target and on what matters most. And there's actually a scientific name for what they're able to do. It's called having quiet eyes. Has anybody ever heard that? This idea of having quiet eyes? Here's the idea of quiet eyes. It's, it's that you, you take, take an elite shooter like Steph Curry or a marksman like an Olympian uh, championship uh, uh, marksman, and here's what they have the ability to do, and they've actually measured this. They can measure their eye movement. How often is their eye moving away from target back to target? away? And what you find in those that just excel is they have very quiet eyes, meaning somehow they're able to focus and very rarely does their eye leave the target. And so where my eye was watching the car in the backfield and the butterfly on the fence and wondering if they run out of grape snow cone, I'm going to hurt somebody. You know, that's me. That's what I'm thinking <laughs> in the batter's box. There better be some big league chew and grape snow cones when this game is over. The guy behind me who could hit didn't think about any of that. He, had, he quieted his eyes. We were able to block it all out. And that's what you see. From, it's what separates elite athletes from average athletes. This idea of having, having quiet eyes. And listen, as, as citizens of the kingdom of God, as disciples of Jesus, we want to live with quiet spiritual eyes. Quiet, what do I mean by that? Eyes that can singularly focus and, and, and be fixed on God's kingdom in every area of our, our life, focused on his kingdom, on his agenda, on his will, and on his purpose, and allowing those things to be what drives our decisions and our motives and our perspective. Your decisions, your motives, your perspectives ought to be uh, shaped and formed and lived by your eye being fixed on the purpose and the kingdom and the agenda and the will of God. As disciples of Jesus, what's going to shape my decisions? Eyes on the kingdom. That's, that's what it is. So we want to live with quiet, spiritual eyes. And so let's look this morning is what does it look like to have our eyes up? So we're going to be in Matthew 4, if you want to grab your Bible and go there. Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to be in the verse just before the verses we talked about last week. Last week we looked at 18 through 22 and we were looking at uh, Jesus and this first call that he gives to the disciples to come and follow me. And, and so just a reminder where we are in the, in the flow of scripture, Jesus has come out of the desert where he fasted and prayed for 40 days and he was tempted by uh, the devil and now he begins his earthly ministry, and what we're going to see this morning is the very first message he ever preaches. And what I want you to notice in it is how in this very short one verse, in this one message, the heart of the gospel is revealed. I want you to see that, and I want you to see that it also reveals what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. If you're there, let me hear you say the Bible is true. Amen. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, for the next few minutes, I pray that you would give us quiet eyes, eyes that can focus on you. And Father, I pray that in this time, the fruit of our time being committed to you this morning, the fruit of that would be that we would live with our eyes up, focused on your kingdom. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what you see right here. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God. That's what he came to do. Well, what is the kingdom? What is the, what is the kingdom of God? He's, is it the kingdom of heaven? Is it the kingdom of God? That's interchangeable language. When Jesus says kingdom of heaven, it is the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. So what does it mean to have a kingdom? A kingdom is the rule and reign of a king over a certain domain, right? It's the scope of land and area where a king has ultimate rule. So think of a country that has a king. Belgium has a king, right? And in Belgium, the king of Belgium is the boss of everything. But if the king of Belgium comes to Texas, guess what? He's powerless. He has no say in our life. In Belgium, he's the king. In Texas, he's just one of us. That's all, right? Because he's outside of his Domain And when, uh, when Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here, he is saying the dominion, the rule, and the reign of God has come. And this is really the theme that runs throughout the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew really centers around Jesus as the king of the kingdom. That's really what so much of this is about. So when you go to Matthew chapter 1, and you see at the very first of Matthew chapter 1, he is listing out the lineage of Christ. I don't know if you've ever read through that. He starts with Abraham, and he works his way through Isaac and Jacob and, and King David and Solomon. What is he doing in that moment? He's establishing a, a lineage of royalty. He's establishing that Jesus is in the line of royalty, so that by the, by the time he gets to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Christ. He is presenting Jesus as the king of kings who has arrived to establish his kingdom. That's what he's doing. And the question I have is, why did Jesus have to come to establish the kingdom of God? Why was that necessary? The answer to that is all the way back in Genesis. All the way back in Genesis. To the first garden and the first time God established his kingdom with man. In the Garden of Eden, God establishes his kingdom. He establishes his rule and his reign with man, and it's perfect. But then something happened, sin entered. And when sin entered, the kingdom of darkness came with it. And from that moment to this moment, the kingdom of darkness has held humanity captive. So that you and I are born into the kingdom of sin and the kingdom of darkness. And we live under the rule and reign of sin and death. But Jesus came to deliver humanity from the power of sin and the kingdom of darkness and to restore us back to the kingdom of God. It's why he came, to establish, to usher in the kingdom of God. And how did he do this? He ushers in the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection. The power of the kingdom of this world is sin and death. That is what holds sway. But when Jesus died, he died for sin. And when he was resurrected, he defeated the power of sin and death. Now, so that those who put their faith in him, those who surrender and submit to his rule and reign, becoming his disciples, they become citizens of his kingdom. They move into a new realm. So I Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that he, Jesus, he has delivered us. From what? From the domain, from the kingdom of darkness. 
and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. How did he do that? Because in him we have redemption through the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus ushers in his kingdom by taking up dominion in our hearts, taking up dominion in our lives through the forgiveness of our sins and the surrender of our lives to him so that as citizens of his kingdom, he desires for us to live under his authority. Even while we live in the kingdom of this world, we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying, eyes up, get a kingdom focus, because the king of the kingdom has come, and he is calling his people home. That's what he's saying. So if we're called to live as eyes up disciples, we're called to live with a kingdom focus, if that is true, then what does that look like? What does it look like to live with my eyes up, focused on the kingdom? There are three ways I think that we see this, that we live as eyes up disciples. We're going to see this in a few places in Matthew, but we're going to start right here in Matthew four seventeen. Here's the first way eyes up disciples live. Eyes up disciples live in the kingdom posture. Eyes up disciples live in the kingdom posture. Look at verse 17 again. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, what's that word? Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Listen, the posture for citizens of the kingdom of God is the posture of repentance. That's the posture of the kingdom. It's the posture of repentance. And that word repent is one of the most important words we can embrace as disciples of Jesus. Here's what it means. Repent means to, to have a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a change of direction. That's what repent means. It means to have a change of mind, change of heart that leads to a change of direction. For about five years, uh, Carrie and I lived in the Metroplex, uh, and uh, while I was uh, going to seminary, and we enjoyed those years, but uh, DFW is not small if you're from Kaysen. It's a large, large place and easy to get turned around, right? So there'd be times we would be driving, we'd be, and this was before phones told you everywhere to go, right? Does anybody remember printing MapQuest pages and taping them to your rearview mirror and driving down the interstate while you're trying to read the novel of directions, right? It was horribly dangerous. So this was, this was kind of during that, that time, but uh, I was too proud to print directions because I got it. And um, so we'd be driving, you know, going somewhere. I'm pretty sure I'm on the right road going the right way. She's pretty sure. No, I'm not. And so we're headed this direction, and it would be a moment when I would arrive on the wrong side of town at the wrong location and realize I've been on the wrong road the whole time. And then there would be this moment where I had a choice, which was either repent have a change of mind and a change of heart that led to a change of direction or just dig in, right? And go, well, this is where we're having dinner now. You know what I mean? And so, <laughs> which guys, by the way, I want to tell you something. All right, husbands, just lean in for a moment. Young men, the day is coming. I want you to hear me. You are never more attractive 
to your wife than when you admit you are lost. Right? She, does, that's not, she doesn't look at you and go, weakling. She looks at you and goes, oh, thank the Lord you said it. I love you so much. Right? <laughs> Just say it. It's good. It's a good thing. And uh, then, you get to, then you get to figure it out together. Um, so there's this moment where I had to acknowledge we ain't where I thought we were going. And then I would have to have a change of mind and turn, get on the right road, head the right way, the better way, to get to where I was supposed to be going the whole time. Listen, repentance means to turn from living life on my terms, going my own way, doing it my own thing. It means to turn from that and to turn to Christ and surrender to him and live life on his terms as the king of the kingdom. That is the kingdom posture, to repent. And I wonder as you hear that, have you truly done that? Turned from living life on your terms and surrendered to living life on his terms. That's what it means to repent. I want you to hear me. Apart from repentance, true repentance, there is no salvation. Are you with me? Apart from true repentance, true turning, there is no salvation. The call of Jesus is not merely a call to pray a prayer. The call of Jesus is to repent and to turn and to submit and to be marked by that submission. Repentance is, has always been and will always be the response that the gospel demands. The gospel demands the response of repentance and you cannot experience the gospel and you cannot experience salvation without repentance. Why? Because to truly see Jesus, to truly know the living God is to be exposed as a hopeless sinner. If you want to see Christ, if you want to see the true and living God, it is to be exposed as a sinner who can't do anything about it. And to be exposed as a hopeless sinner before the living God moves you to take up the posture of repentance. And you do one of two things. You dig in or you turn. And say, I want to turn from this. And I want to turn to him. And I want to give my life to the king of the kingdom. So has that happened for you? This idea of repentance. And listen, repentance, that posture of repentance, it's not just how we enter the kingdom. It's the posture that we live in as citizens of the kingdom. Right? The, the, the tense of that verb, repent, that Jesus used, we talk about it often. It's the present active imperative, meaning it is a command that is continual. Jesus is saying, repent and go on repenting. Live repenting. What do you mean I'm just supposed to live defeated, saying sorry all the time? No, I mean you live surrendered. You live submitted. You live going, this life is not about my rights. It's about what he's wanting to do in my life. Repent and keep on repenting. That's the posture. It's what brings us into the kingdom, repentance. And it's the posture we take as we live in the kingdom. We live 
repenting. You see this as right after Matthew 4, starting in Matthew 5, Jesus begins the greatest sermon ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount for three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, and he's just unpacking what it looks like for his citizens to live in his kingdom. And he begins the very first few verses helping us understand this posture of surrender and this posture of repentance. And so he says this, starting in Matthew 5, uh, uh, verse 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Meaning, blessed are those who have recognized they are spiritually bankrupt. There's a blessing in it. What's the blessing? He said, blessing are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. They get the kingdom. Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually broken and in poverty and undone and hopeless. When you get there, Jesus said, that's where you want to be. The moment you've stopped trying to fix yourself, that's where you want to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he said, blessed are those who mourn. Meaning, their hearts are broken over the reality that they're a hopeless sinner and they can't do a thing about it. He said, blessed are those who mourn. For they're going to be comforted by the king. And then he said, blessed are the meek. Those who yield. Those who are humble those who surrender, those who actually turn, not those who dig in, but those who yield their life to Christ, the meek, the humble, the submitted, the yielded. Blessed are those, for they shall inherit the earth. Being an eyes up type of disciple means that right now we live in a perpetual state of surrender and submission to Jesus. Kingdom-focused disciples live relinquishing our rights and our lives to King Jesus. That's what we do. Eyes up disciples live in the kingdom posture of repentance. Here's the second thing. Eyes up disciples live for kingdom purposes. They live for kingdom purposes. So they live in the posture of, of submission and they live for kingdom purposes. As Jesus keeps working his way through the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches this reality. In, in Matthew 5, he, he talks about the posture of repentance. And then he gets to Matthew chapter 6, and he begins to show us that his disciples live for the purposes of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. He says, but seek first what? The kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is clear here. He is saying kingdom citizens pursue kingdom purpose. That is what they do. Citizens of my kingdom pursue the purposes of my kingdom so that when we surrender our lives, the purpose of our existence, the purpose of our lives change. Now we are to seek the kingdom first. That word first is an a interesting word. It's the Greek word protos, which is where we get the English word priority. It's where we get our word priority. So in essence, Jesus is saying that we are to seek and set the kingdom of God as the highest priority in our life, meaning this, believer, it's not one priority among many. It's not one thing among many things. It's the thing over everything. That's what it is. And we have this thing in our culture 
We have this thing as in, in Western church, and we have this thing in Gilmer where our lives are put into boxes and compartments, and Sunday is the Jesus box. And so on Sunday, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I go and do what disciples of Jesus do. And that, that identity is a thing that's just a part of who I am. It's a part of who I am. It's a part of, of what I do. And Jesus is saying, he didn't say, seek the kingdom as you seek everything else. As a matter of fact, in the verses in front of that, he draws this massive contrast. In verses 25 through 32, he literally says, you got to stop seeking what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, and how you're going to live. He said, if you want to know who's con unbelievers are consumed with those things. They are consumed with how am I going to live? How much can I get? How do I look? What do others think? Am, is my life presenting itself in that Facebook, Instagram way that people know I got it going on? Does that appearance, do I have all of that? And Jesus goes, that's what unbelievers pursue. You don't seek that. Seek first the kingdom. And he sets it as the priority. And I think there, too often, um, lives of disciples, those who say, I belong to Jesus, too often our lives look like carbon copies of those in the culture. Are you with me or am I just making that up? I don't think I'm just making it up. Look, carbon copies. And so often the only day we look different is this day. Right? We constantly have things that are warring for our attention, warring for our affection, warring to be a priority in our life, to be the top priority in our life. And Jesus is saying, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, how you look, how you're going to pay your bills, how you're going to... He said, unbelievers set those things as the top priority. The citizens of my kingdom seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they've come to understand that in doing that, Every other priority finds its place. And when I seek the kingdom, I get all I need. I get all I need. It doesn't mean that stuff doesn't matter, right? It's important. But eyes up disciples understand they have a greater calling. We have a greater purpose than just the needs and wants of this life so that our jobs and our money and our decisions and our possessions and our children and our spouses and our relationships and our homes and everything in our life is under the banner of the kingdom. It's under the banner. It's under the authority, which means I have it for the glory of the king. And if I'm not using it for that, i got to step back and go, am I focused on the kingdom purpose? Do I have eyes for the kingdom? Seek first the kingdom is this beautiful invitation to live in a glorious new reality with new priorities and new purposes. 
eyes up disciples live in the kingdom posture of repentance. We live for kingdom purposes. Here's the last thing. Eyes up disciples live with the kingdom's power. Live with the kingdom's power. Again, all of Matthew, there's this thread that runs, this theme that runs of the kingdom of God and Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And when you get to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, you see this reality uh, unpacked that eyes up disciples live with the kingdom's power. We talked about last week, Matthew 28 and the Great Commission and how it's like the, the graduation ceremony uh, for the disciples. But I want you to see what Jesus says. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority. How much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has died. He's resurrected. He's, he's covered sin. He's paid the penalty for sin. He's defeated the power of sin and the grave. And in this moment, he declares that he alone and no other possesses all authority, both in heaven and on earth, in what is seen and what is unseen. And listen, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me. We should be filled with amazement at the absolute authority and sovereignty of Jesus Christ over this world and the unstoppable nature of his mission to save sinners. We ought to just stand in amazement at the reality that he has all authority. All authority. This is a declaration that his kingdom rule and he rules and reigns over everything. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am the owner and the CEO of this universe. It belongs to me. And all power belongs to me. And the ruling, reigning king of the kingdom reigns over this world with absolute sovereignty, which means this, nothing, nothing, is outside his sovereign will. Well, hold on. Hold on, Matt. Nothing? What about that bad thing that happened in my life? What about that? What about the thing that makes no sense, the tragedy that we walked through? They died too young. They shouldn't have cancer. My job, I got passed over and I lost my job. Our home burned. The, what about that? Are you telling me the God who is filled with glory and goodness is allowing that to happen in his sovereignty? I'm telling you, he has allowed it. It is passed through the fingers of the sovereign hand of God. He is, and in it, disciples of Jesus who have their eyes up, focused on the kingdom, don't see it as what's bad happening to them. They see it as God has put me in the kiln of a refiner's fire and he's shaping me, he's molding me, he's burning off idols, he's burning off the things that don't matter so that my eyes will be fixed on him because it's for my good and it's for his glory. Maybe God's got you in the fire and you don't know why you're in the fire and you don't like it and you don't want to be there. 
You don't want to be there. And I don't say that to you from someone who doesn't know the heat of the fire. I know the heat of the fire. And I can look back on 45 years of a life and see moments marked where he's put me and my family in the fire. And in that moment, I hated every second of it. And I didn't know what he was doing, and it hurt. But I look back now and go, God used that moment. He was doing something. <laughs> he was, was doing something. The king of the kingdom reigns sovereignly over this universe. So if it entered my life, it passed through his sovereignty to get there, which means it has purpose. There's a plan in it. It isn't wasted. It's, 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 it's engaged my life for a reason. And an eyes up, kingdom-focused disciple says, God, somehow you have purpose in it. There's going to be power in it. I'll just yield my life and let you do what you're going to do. I know that's hard. But what I want to tell you is, he's sovereign. He's sovereign. You can look at the chaos of this world, and you can put your head on your pillow at night and go, I belong to the king who is sovereign. I belong to the king who is sovereign. And if he is met with resistance in his sovereign plan, he either allows it for his purpose or he overcomes it for his purpose. But his sovereign purposes cannot be stopped. I love what Isaiah said in Isaiah 46. He gave us such a beautiful picture of the sovereign, powerful king of the kingdom. He said this, in verse 9, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That's your king. That's the one you belong to if you're a disciple of Jesus. That's him right there. He has all authority. And notice what Jesus says here at the end of this moment when he says, I have all authority. Now go and make disciples. And notice what he says in the end. He says, and behold, look, don't lose sight of the reality. Behold, I am with you always, every step of the way, everywhere you go, where you live, where you work, where you play. Behold, the one who has all power is with you every step of the way. So how do we have this supernatural kingdom power? Because let's be honest. We don't always feel powerful, right? Where does that come from? Does it come from the surrender of my life to Jesus? Yes. Does it come from making myself a citizen of the kingdom, yielding my rights, surrendering to him, living in the posture of repentance? You bet. Does it come from having my eyes focused on him and living for his purposes and his agenda and his will and not my own? Absolutely it does. And it also comes from a life of prayer and a life of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You, do, you will never walk in supernatural power if you are not a praying disciple. You just won't, it won't happen. If you are not in a posture of prayer, you will never walk in supernatural power in this life. 
Because prayer is the means by which we engage the supernatural. It is the means by which the heart of God moves. It is the means by which he fills us with the Holy Spirit. When I'm walking in supernatural power, this means the power of his mission in my life has nothing to do with my ability or my intellect or my power of persuasion. Your ability to live on mission for Christ has nothing to do with how smart you are or how persuasive you are. This is the God who used Moses who couldn't string a sentence together. It's a God who looked at Peter and go, I, I know every rabbi rejected you and you didn't finish school. Come on, I want you to follow me. I'm going to change the world with you. He doesn't need my power of persuasion. You know what he needs? He needs my heart to be yielded, surrendered, just held up to say, God, whatever you want to do. Which means, believer, listen, we don't have to walk through this life with our heads down. We don't have to walk through this life fearful of rejection. We don't have to walk through this life worried about the way people will receive us. And we must not walk through this life with pride and arrogance and an argumentative spirit. We can simply walk in the power of the kingdom of God and engage the world around us with the love of the king that has changed us. That's all we can do. That's what we can do. So let me ask you a few questions. One. Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? And please don't answer that by, well, yeah, I'm at church. Please don't do that. Hell will be filled with people who came to church. But they never repented. They never stopped. And they never turned. And they never pursued the love of God. And they were never, they were never transformed. Have you truly repented? Have you... You truly surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord, turning from living life on your terms, your way, your plans, and giving him control. Has that happened? If not, today's the day. Eternity is forever. Hell is real. The moment we start singing, you got to start moving. Today's the day. And you know, I believe if you're in this room, you know right now, even as I'm speaking, you know whether or not you've actually done that. Because there's a change in your life. You're no longer going the way you were going. You've been transformed. Has that happened? Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Here's the next question. Are there things in your life that you and your family are seeking first other than the kingdom of God? This next few minutes as we worship, it may be a time where you and your spouse just sit down and pray. Maybe a time where as a family, y'all just come to the altar and acknowledge there are things that we are pursuing and loving and, and going after more than we are the kingdom of God. This may just be a time to just repent as a family. And then are you living in the power of the kingdom? Is prayer essential to you? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? That's what this next moment is. And so I invite you to stand. And as you're standing, we're going to respond. And my challenge to you is this. Don't stay still because it's awkward. If you know the Holy Spirit has said something into your heart and you need to move, be courageous. 
and move. Father, I pray that for the next few moments, this room would be a room that is submitted to the king of the kingdom. We just, we're not worried about what others think of us. We're not worried if we look weak. We're not worried that someone may find out our life isn't what we thought it was. All we care about is being a citizen of the kingdom. Life surrendered to you, filled with your Holy Spirit. So God, would you move that way in Jesus' name. Let's worship and respond.